It was Easter Sunday, 2020. The world was struggling to come to terms with the impact of a new virus that was galloping across national borders. Infection seemed unstoppable. Death tolls were rising through the Northern Hemisphere winter. In Melbourne, it was a cool and clear day for the Easter holiday. Australia's chief scientist, Alan Finkel, was out with his wife, Elizabeth, walking along the Yarra River when his phone rang. It was the health minister, Greg Hunt. This is how Alan remembers the call. Alan, I've just been speaking to the Prime Minister and we share the concern about winter coming and we don't know what impact winter will have on the likely contagion of the virus. Would it be possible that your new forum can get us that answer? And sooner rather than later... The call didn't come completely out of the blue. It was rather a combination of several months of a carefully built bridge between science and government that had started when the CEO of the Australian Academy of Science, Anna Maria Arabia, had watched the bushfires of late 2019 and knew science was indispensable to the recovery of the nation's devastated environment. Early in January 2020, she rang the Prime Minister's office. As Anna Maria saw it, there was no better time to bring science into the service of the nation. The Academy Anna Maria leads provides independent and authoritative scientific advice while helping to promote and celebrate science across the country. The Academy has within its ranks the nation's best scientists, most of them practice collaborators, many of them international experts. So when Anna Maria picked up the phone to the Prime Minister's office, she didn't mess around. She didn't ask if her president, Professor John Shine, could meet Prime Minister Scott Morrison, but when. I think I literally said, your Prime Minister needs to speak to my President. So when can we make this happen? And so we did. And so they did have a chat. And it was a moment where the value of science, I felt, was given more attention than it had been in the past. And I don't want you to take from that comment that uh, science is not valued at all by anything like that, but it it was a moment. The meeting became something of a taste of what was to come there was an emerging sense that science was finding its way into the government's policy considerations. Anna Maria saw it up close in one conversation with Scott Morrison after the fires had destroyed so many of the apple orchards in the small New South Wales town of Badlow. I remember having discussions with the Prime Minister around the very critical role that bees play in our ecosystem. And he was really receptive to this because the story was told in a way that mattered in so much as Before you go logging all those trees that you think perhaps just need to be logged, you have to let the bees do their their job. That's called ecosystem services in our world because what they do to pollinate will help you rebuild Batlow and all of those areas that have had all of their apple orchards disappear. For those Mm. to regenerate, you actually need nature here as well. So, Mm. And there's a science there that we understand. And so it's not just about clearing this up. This is about letting every part of this ecosystem, uh, the human side and the other side, do their bit. And it sounds odd, but it really resonated because I think it was connected back to the need to get industries and communities back off the ground. And we we really did need each other's expertise here. That was very, very clear. So I think on the other side of that door was a willingness to accept that this was at a magnitude and intensity greater than we had ever seen. And I think in pure political terms, an understanding that at that time he wasn't doing so well and he needed to be listening. I think that that was part of him being more receptive to some Mm. of his messaging. This engagement about bushfires was an important early step in developing rapport and trust for what was to come. 
we've been able to contribute to a sense that evidence-informed policy is worth pursuing. We can develop a policy and a response without scientific evidence, but we are better for having consulted it. Now, there were plenty uh, bushfire responses that did not take into account scientific evidence, and that's okay. Some of the immediate reactions just really needed to happen. But I think overall there was a sense of uh, if we can coordinate our effort, if we can at the very least consider science and what the evidence base tells us, we're going to have a better chance at getting a good response. With the acknowledgement from the scientific side, and I think this was important too, I think previously we had a sense that when the scientists show you the evidence, they expect this pure scientific response, and, and that's not true. When the scientists show you the evidence, they are grateful for the scientific evidence base being considered as one factor, but realise that there are a range of other factors that need to be considered. So I think what the bushfires exemplified is we're not this kind of purest cohort of people that says you've got to do this because the science says X, Y and Z. Actually, what we've been saying for a long time and what was brought into focus was that our policy response is better if it is informed by science. But of course, in those early days, no one really knew much about COVID-19. Theories and speculation were common. Everyone tried to make sense of something no one had ever seen. There were doubters, sceptics, and a few informed types who feared the worst. In such a febrile environment, knowledge is a vital tool. Evidence is a solid foundation. Facts are your friend. And Alan Finkel was the right person for the job. He was in his final year of his five-year term as the nation's chief scientist. His career had traversed science and technology. He's been an entrepreneur and a university chancellor, and he has a doctorate in electrical engineering. For many, Dr Finkel was already the nation's most well-known scientist. In his role as chief scientist, Alan had led several high-end deep-dive policy reviews that ranged in topics from school education to low emissions technology, and perhaps most notably the 2017 review into the national electricity market that became known as the Finkel Report. Many of the reports had taken six to 12 months to complete, some even longer. Alan knew that despite the high calibre of that kind of work, the delivery time was slow and too slow to provide the expert information required for a rapidly moving and unpredictable pandemic. Alan's goal was to find a way to deliver high-quality, relevant research quickly to government. He knew there was the expertise available and the desire to impart the scientific knowledge, but it was finding the most time-efficient way to get it there so it could be most useful. The solution started with a phone call, just a few weeks after the meeting between the Prime Minister and Professor Shine. This time, it was the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff calling Alan, and it was during that conversation the seeds were planted for what would become the Rapid Research Information Forum, or RIF. The discussion traversed the Academy of Sciences' convening power to enlist the help of the nation's expert academies and the state's chief scientists to come up with a mechanism that would help provide quality, timely information delivered by experts to government. Now, with the backing of the highest office in the land, Alan Finkel assembled the experts from across the country in a Zoom meeting to thrash out just how this idea could take shape. It arrived at a clear and simple set of guidelines that would enable the nation's experts to respond quickly to a government request with accessible and relevant information. 
They have to be relatively short, and we've targeted 1,500 words. They have to be written for an intelligent audience that is not expert in the field, such as ministers and their advisors and senior public servants. No requests for money, no specific recommendations, interpreted through the eyes of the best experts in Australia based on up-to-date published information in peer-reviewed journals and preprints and whatever they also know from their own research experience and a collective contribution across the academies, but written in a nice single voice so that it's an efficient, enjoyable, informative read for these senior people and public, a published document. And that's where we've ended up. Soon after, Alan sent Health Minister Greg Hunt a text. It simply said, we're here. The Rapid Research Information Forum was ready to go. So perhaps it wasn't such a surprise that on that Easter Sunday, Alan got a call from the health minister. Then he called Anna Maria. Easter Sunday, Alan called me and I said, oh, well, there goes the long weekend. Um, And it's pretty hard to kind of get people to contribute stuff on a public holiday. But the researchers of the nation were so primed and so ready to help. And I think that has been very much exemplified in all this. Yeah, Mm. absolute extraordinary contribution they make mostly pro bono on these extra things for no benefit. You know, they weren't paid. You know, there is benefit, there's prestige, but there was an enormous um, sense of giving back. Let's pause there for a moment. Last Easter, almost 12 months ago, Australia was still uncertain just how bad this pandemic would get. There was everything going on. There were toilet roll shortages, the introduction of homeschooling. People started wearing masks. And then came the lockdowns. Businesses closed. And worst of all, the terrible sickness, the high contagion and the loss of life. We were being exposed to a level of science most of us had never experienced. As we watched the case numbers grow, we were hearing from experts we'd rarely seen in public. Who were these calm, rational, persuasive people called epidemiologists? We started to use special acronyms such as PPE because we knew how important they were. The constant squirt of hand sanitizer was the practical application of the science of viral transmission. Science was becoming embedded into how we engaged with the pandemic. Without it, there would be no strategy to contain it. With it, there might be a way of navigating the nation to safer waters. But what did it all amount to? Did widespread community engagement with scientific expertise amount to a sustained change in our thinking? Had a new deal been brokered between science and policymakers? Had the pandemic managed to crack what seemed to be the code of silence that existed between government and scientific expertise? On one measure alone, COVID had shifted science, and particularly medicine, in a compelling way. A US report found that the biomedical library PubMed listed more than 74,000 COVID-related scientific papers. That's more than twice as many papers as there are about polio, measles, cholera, dengue, or other diseases that we've known about for hundreds of years. A Harvard University study of 2,500 researchers in the US, Canada, and Europe found that one in three had shifted their focus on the pandemic. It speaks to the urgent pivot many scientific and medical researchers made to address the global health threat, not just to find a vaccine, but to understand how the virus works and its effect on our bodies. 
But is that shift in scientific priorities mirrored in the way the community, and importantly, how government values science? Has the pandemic created its own science of systems change? For the Australian Academy of Science and Dr Alan Finkel, the establishment of the Rapid Research Information Forum was a significant pointer to science's place at the table to deliver expertise that informed government policy. But it wasn't just science. It was the expertise of the nation's other expert academies, the humanities, the social sciences and technological sciences and engineering academies who were enthusiastic participants in RIF as well. And no one associated with RIF's first paper, for Health Minister Greg Hunt, underestimated the high stakes involved in getting it right, especially about being able to deliver it on time. We were all in the deep end, including the government. There was no no room to get this wrong. I mean, for me, it was showing, demonstrating the capability, which I knew we had, but there was an entire audience out there who needed to see it to believe it. Alan Finkel promised to get that first report to the minister in three days. It ended up taking five. But it's not surprising the tight time frame was a stretch. There were a lot of people involved devising, formulating, writing and approving the final document. We used the Academy of Science as an overarching operational lead, but mm. for each of the topics, each of the questions, we tend to choose one of the appropriate academies to be the actual lead. Then we put out a call for authors, they put in con contributions, then we use internal full-time policy people within the academy right. to write the first draft, which then goes back to the scientists. Mm -hmm. And then it gets refined, and then it goes to a couple of people who are editors, and my wife stepped in. My wife was the editor of Cosmos magazine, and so she stepped in and uh, made fantastic editorial contributions last year to all the ones that we did, and then it had to go through me. From then on, they worked out a more realistic time frame to respond to ministers' requests. Seven days was tight, 14 days far more manageable. In the weeks to come, the RIF provided cabinet ministers with a range of reports canvassing the seasonality of COVID-19, the viability of the SARS virus on surfaces, the impact of pandemic on the nation's research workforce and learning outcomes for online versus in-class education. Alan recalls there was some security in knowing that that first report wasn't about trying to predict what would happen. Because as scientists, none of us, and I'm not, I wasn't the expert, of course, none of us were saying this is what will happen. What we were saying, this is what is likely to be the impact. And it's never as simple as it seems. You know, you would think from other diseases like influenza that winter would be a big problem. But what we concluded is it will be an effect. And I think they even put a percentage on it. Uh, to, I can't remember. It might have been 30 or 40%. But the stronger message was that that will be small compared to the public health interventions that are available to the government. So the ultimate message in that particular case was, yes, it's something you must take into account, but don't panic. It's not an overriding factor that will lead to the virus getting out of the control. The impact of that first report was telling. The federal cabinet liked what it had seen. And in the weeks to come, as ministers continued to ask RIF for information, the positive feedback continued. Scott Morrison was even moved to mention RIF when he spoke, virtually, at the nation's annual science awards. And to guide us in all this, of course, people in government don't have all the answers. And so I've drawn on the best of Australia, 
On the onset of this pandemic, our chief scientist, Dr. Alan Finkel, established the Rapid Research Information Forum. This forum harnesses expertise of our leading scientific institutions and provides factual science-based answers on the pandemic for ministers. Without advice from the best minds in our science community, we could not have acted as swiftly or as confidently or as effectively as we have. Although the federal government had provided some funding support for RIF, there were also several anonymous philanthropists, in addition to the Mindaroo Foundation, who helped support it. And despite the Academy of Science urging the federal government in its 2021 pre-budget submission to continue to fund RIF, there is still an opportunity, even a need, for philanthropy to help support RIF's continuation and with it, the potential for future systemic change. As Anna Maria points out, to engage the experts on an urgent project means they need to swing away from their daily work. The peaks that come with the Rapid Research Information Forum really means you have to pull people off their daily job and have them focus very intensely. Mostly that's okay, but there are smaller academies and organisations that are part of RIF that don't really have that spare capacity. And I think it does need some capacity building to keep that up. Certainly at the intensity that it was in the peak of the pandemic, yes. I mean, we pulled out all stops. A lot of things stopped at the academy, but it was well worth it. I, I don't contribute that as a complaint, but it wasn't a sustainable situation. So we did um, receive some philanthropic support and that helped us. Certainly at the academy, we were able to bring on one dedicated policy officer it reinforced some of our ICT capability and communications, extra costs that we had incurred. We just absorbed, really, uh, but made sure that they could be supplemented. And the philanthropic support has been wonderful, but ideally that would continue and that could continue in different ways, either through philanthropic contribution or through government contribution, because I'd like to think there is a realisation that evidence-informed decision-making is a really good structure for making good decisions. At the heart of supporting the Rapid Research Information Forum is an understanding that it represents a valuable model for the continuing dialogue between science and policymakers. But the question is, does it have a place outside the circumstances of a pandemic? Does the RIF represent an important stage in the evolution of science place in the government scheme of things? Or are such innovations entirely an act of happenstance, an opportunity taken, but a change never to be consolidated? So Peter Gluckman is Chair of the International Network of Government Science Advice and President-elect of the International Science Council. He was also the first Chief Science Advisor to the Prime Minister of New Zealand. He, for one, is not convinced that the pandemic has pushed the door open for science's greater acceptance, especially in the wider community. Science has certainly been critical to the decisions made about the pandemic. Certainly science has been more trusted by many people, but equally is exposed to a large amount of anti-scientism and distrust of science. And you're seeing that now playing out quite overtly in the anti-vax movement. So I think that all it has done is reinforce the biases of those people who actually understood that to deal with something like a virus, you need the science, and reinforce the biases of those people who have a different view and think that science is in cahoots with Bill Gates and cahoots with Big Pharma, et cetera, et cetera, and the whole thing is an attack on the individual freedoms, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't think it's as fundamental 
uh, change as it's merely been the most overt demonstration of reinforcing the biases of most people that knowledge is important in making decisions. But Sir Peter is not for one moment diminishing the importance of science in the making of policy. That's to be celebrated, he says, but often how the interaction between science and policy takes place can depend on who the government listens to. I don't think any of them would claim that they would ignore science. Even mm. Trump would not claim he ignored the science mm. until he got really crazy towards the end. But that doesn't mean that they don't pick and choose the science that they want to listen to. They always have. They always will. When I think back even to the beginning of the New Zealand shutting the borders, their so-called elimination strategy, they will claim that they were following the science. They were not following the science. They were told... Prime Minister, if you don't shut the bloody borders this week, next week we will not have a health system that can cope. End of story. Niall Fay takes a different view. Niall is the CEO of the Fay Fuller Foundation, but before he took on that role, he was working in cooperative research centres in that space between government policy and academic innovation. Niall's view is that there is actually more opportunities available for experts to contribute to government policy even though he acknowledges that people in power are often reluctant to be told what to do. You look at our Australian parliament system where you have a minister with a legal background, an economics and legal background, that might be the health minister and the innovation Mm. minister and the minister for this and the minister for that without any type of higher education or career or real strength of knowledge in that area. So if we're going to have this this homogenous group of political leaders almost, then, okay, I don't agree with it, but if you're going to do that, well, then what you can do is turn around and leverage those innovators and the, the world leaders in those fields to make sure that their voice has a priority when setting policy direction around climate change or economics. You know, you get your best thinkers around those things to inform government policy as much as possible because... The minister themselves doesn't have that that background. Central to these discussions is envisioning whether what we've seen with RIF is scalable so that it becomes the thin end of a wedge rather than a one-off forged in the heat of a global crisis. Faye points out that patience, not for the first time, is a key determinant to plotting the path ahead. These types of, you know, rapid response think tanks have been tried before in different sectors. I was involved with one in defence called RPD, Rapid Prototype um, Development. Government identified challenge that needed a quick look and who wants to go out, what are the three, four, five research and innovators that need to be brought together to look at that and rapidly prototype the solutions to that challenge and deliver it back Mm. to So, you know, what what you hope is those types of groups, when they wound up or they finished up, they kind of went, hey, you know, that worked really well, that didn't work, this is the way we need to do it. The other thing is it's going to take patience, right? So it's going to take time as well. So the government can't turn around and go, we're going to try to scale this model over the next 12 or 18 months, but if in 12 months it's not delivering the outcomes it thought it would be and, and they shut it down, well, then that's that's inevitably not going to going to work. So if they want to trial this, this model, they need to invest in it and they need to invest in it over a longer period of time to allow the first year, those first two years, to work out some of the kinks about how do you enable and motivate and fund the right researchers to get involved with one another. When you bring the right researchers together, you take them off sometimes 
their other work, their other priorities as well. So how do you incentivize them to drop what they're doing with a guaranteed funding pathway for their other research? And you bring For his in- part, Alan Finkel is measured when he considers RIF's role in shifting these broader systems of power and information provision. However, he's keen to celebrate just how important science has been in 2020. With intense effort, they can crack nearly any challenge that's put in front of them. You've seen it in science and in technology and in social sciences and and economics and humanities as well. The research system last year uh, really delivered. It delivered in the very obvious result of the vaccines. You know, we've got five or six or more vaccines that have been through phase three trials or in phase three trials in the course of a year and rapidly being rolled out, never, ever has anything like that been achieved. And it's because they had a lot of really good work over the years to build on, but also just the amount of funding and the intensity of concentration. And it's just nice to think that when you put the smart people together, well-funded with a clear challenge, boy, can they deliver. And then you saw with technology, with the booming of video conference capabilities, et cetera, et cetera. To me, there was a, it's a clear message that if a problem is clearly articulated, in this case, it was clearly articulated, not because we wanted it to be, but because it was thrust upon us, the research community can get together, work with the technological community and the engineers and, and deliver solutions every time. It's like, you know, the famous moon mission, JFK, articulated the challenge was extraordinary what they achieved in 10 years. Mm -hmm. But if it hadn't been clearly articulated and funded, it would have just ambled along and maybe never got there. Alan would like to see the Prime Minister give a formal indication to his ministers that the RIF should still be a resource for them as we emerge into what should be a more normal world. He's had informal discussions that suggest the RIF will continue to play a role, but ultimately that will fall to his successor as Chief Scientist, Dr Cathy Foley, to take on the RIF convening role should that occur. For the bigger question of issues to do with climate change and healthy ageing and waste management, will they go back to the research establishment and seek advice from them? I think they will, to some extent is my qualifier, but I think they will because they've seen it work. They've seen Mm. it work during this crisis and if they can take advantage of that, why shouldn't they? It's worked to their benefit. Behind that, though, is a broader optimism that scientific expertise could have a larger role in other policy debates. After all, it makes sense that that should happen. For Anna Maria, the results of the Rapid Research Information Forum's participation in public policymaking represent something profound and long-lasting, especially when it comes to the place science now occupies in the community consciousness. It was a career highlight. It was deeply, deeply satisfying Mm. to be able to demonstrate the power of science and the utility of science to government and to the nation more broadly. Yes, I think there has been a turnaround um, in the public's view of science and scientists. Again, you know, if I wanted to use a stereotype and think about that ivory tower professor who, you know, he or she, usually a he at that point, um, is you know, kind of speaks in ways that's not meaningful. I, I, I think that's been completely debunked. We have seen some of the most extraordinary minds on our televisions every single night um, and on radio sharing with us their knowledge where it would be hard not to look at that and say, wow, you know, th- this didn't happen overnight. Clearly their expertise and knowledge base has been built over years and this is a result of 
hundreds of years of investment in science and research. So today we've we've got what we we've got these this knowledge that we've needed to call upon. Thank goodness, you know, thank goodness we've valued that along the years to be able to call on it now. And gosh, we need to continue valuing it to be able to call upon it going forward. You've been listening to the Philanthropy Australia podcast. I'm Nick Richardson. Thanks for listening.